Our case for argument this morning is 2018-2140, Arthrex v. Smith & Nephew. Mr. Pry, go ahead and proceed. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the Court. Commissioner Hirschfeld's decision violated the Appointments Clause, the Vacancies Reform Act, and the Separation of Powers, and I will start with the statutory claim. The Vacancies Reform Act sets forth the exclusive mechanism for temporarily authorizing a subordinate to perform the functions of a vacant principal office. The government did not comply with any of the three options that statute gave it to make an acting appointment. Instead, the agency simply came up with its own succession plan and delegated all of the director's functions to Commissioner Hirschfeld, which was not one of the statutory options. That violated the statute for two reasons. First, the Vacancies Reform Act clearly says that an agency may not rely on general delegation authority to evade the statute's specific mechanisms for making acting appointments, but that's exactly what the agency did here. In the government's view, because the director had general delegation authority, none of his functions was exclusive, and therefore he was free to provide any succession mechanism he pleased, despite the statutory options. That theory just can't be squared with the statute because it renders Section 3347B and its prohibition on using general delegation authority to circumvent the statute. Counselor, if Congress wanted to prevent the appointee or the acting director from taking specific functions or duties, wouldn't they have done that? They did that, Your Honor. That is what they did in 3347B. Congress enacted that in response to a specific problem. Before the 1998 statute, the Department of Justice had been doing this exact same thing. What was prohibited? What did Congress prohibit? Congress prohibited agencies from relying on their general delegation authority to circumvent the Act's acting appointment mechanisms. That's exactly what the agency did here. The agency promulgated a regulation that transfers all of the director's functions wholesale to a different officer, and it's a delegation that kicks in only when there's a vacancy in the principal office. That's my point. Couldn't Congress have prohibited or restricted the delegation of certain functions or duties had it wanted to do so? That's what it did in Section 3347B of the Vacancies Reform Act. It says in the clearest possible terms that an agency cannot rely on its general delegation authority to circumvent the FBRA's statutory appointment mechanisms. Counsel, could we talk about Section 3348? Section 3348 seems to arguably narrow the scope of applicability for the Vacancy Reform Act by defining function or duty in a very tightly specific way to be functions or duties that can only exclusively be done by a particular officer. And so that raises the question, the other side raised the argument that the FBRA is really only applicable to non-delegable functions or duties, and therefore delegable functions or duties are still outside the scope of the FBRA. 
Your Honor, you're exactly right that that provision raises a question of interpretation. But in our view, there's only two sensible ways to harmonize those two provisions consistent with the language of the statute and what Congress was trying to accomplish. First of all, Section 3348 can and should be read to apply only where Congress explicitly vests an authority in multiple officers or at least provides for a specific delegation of functions, relying on a general delegation authority to transfer all of a principal officer's functions to someone else in the event of a vacancy runs right into Section 3347B. And so if you interpret 3348 to include even general delegation authority, you render Section 3347B just totally superfluous. Does it render it superfluous or is it the case that things which cannot be delegated because they are by the statutory terms only to be performed by that certain officer would not be things that can be delegated as part of any kind of general delegation? I mean, doesn't it come down to the nature of the duties and the functions? But in the real world, every agency has general delegation authority and it applies to the vast and overwhelming majority of the agency's functions. So even if it doesn't render it technically superfluous in all cases, it renders the sweep of the statute vanishingly small. Do you acknowledge that this function, reviewing decisions by the board or having the discretion to review decisions by the board, is something that is not established by statute that the director and only the director can perform? Your Honor, our second argument, and it's an independent ground for ruling in our favor, is that it is not a delegable function. It is an exclusive function because by statute, no one in the agency can single-handedly review board decisions and the Supreme Court held that unconstitutional only as to the director. So the director cannot delegate that function to someone who the statute prohibits from exercising the function. And that's what the director attempted to do here. I'm confused. I guess I'm just not following, so you better slow down and explain it to me. Functions and duties as defined under 3348 requires that it be a function or duty that is established by statute. We're in an unusual, uncharted territory because the Supreme Court created director review here out of judicial fiat. There isn't a particular statutory section that governs it, is there? There is, Your Honor. If you look at the Supreme Court's decision, it relied on the director's general authority of review and management over the patent office in Section 3 of the Patent Act. So that is the statute that's doing the work. So the function then is the statute that attaches to this function, and I don't think you're wrong. I think your review of Arthrex in the Supreme Court is probably right, is that the Supreme Court found it housed somehow in the director's general oversight authority. So if that's the statutory section, how does that comport with 2 little i of 3348, which says, is required by statute to be performed by the applicable officer and only that officer? It certainly can't be the case that all of the functions that are the general functions that fall within that umbrella provision are only functions that can be performed by the director and therefore not delegatable. That's right, Your Honor, but it's really the interaction of two statutes that are issued here. Under Section 3A, the director would presumptively have the ability to review board decisions. Section 6C, however, says that nobody in the office can single-handedly review board decisions, and it's that latter provision that the Supreme Court in Arthrex held unconstitutional only as applied to the director. 
So following Arthrex, you have Section 3, which gives the director power over the agency, including review power. I'm sorry, what did you say Section 6C says? It says that no individual can review a board decision because it says that only the board can grant a hearing and the board must act in Hamilton 3. But that was held unconstitutional as applied to the director in Arthrex. But you think Section 6C has a unilateral type constraint to it? You think the statutory section itself indicates that no one else can do this? Or does it just authorize a particular body to be able to do it? No, it has a constraint, Your Honor, because it says that only the board can do it and the board must act in Hamilton 3 when it doesn't. So under that statute, that would restrict the director's power under Section 3A. And that's why the Supreme Court had to declare Section 6C unconstitutional. Right, but I don't understand how Section 6C helps you because the Supreme Court did not rewrite Section 6C to specifically inject the words and the director and only the director has the authority to review any decision, final written decision by the patent board. That the Supreme Court did not do, so I don't see how Section 6C as reinterpreted by the Supreme Court helps you. Well, Section 6C does prohibit any individual from reviewing board decisions because it says only the board can review a decision and it has to act in Hamilton 3. And so, but for the Supreme Court's decision, neither the director nor anyone else in the agency would be able to single-handedly review board decisions. Right, but we're getting back to Chief Judge Moore's question. The question is what statute establishes the director's authority to do this particular function of reviewing board decisions? And I don't think you can point to 6C for that. The best you have is 3A1, which is just the general authority that all powers are vesting in the director. It is Section 3A, but it's not just the best we have. It's what the Supreme Court pointed to, Your Honor. That is where the Supreme Court grounded the director's power of unilateral review. The court recognized that ordinarily that Section 3A review power would be hedged by Section 6C. So let me get back to my earlier question, which was about the effect of 3348 and how to understand 3348 in the larger Vacancy Reform Act. I mean, there's a pretty straightforward reading of 3348 that says only non-delegable functions that are performed by someone like Drew Hirschfeld would be void under 3348 because functions or duties are defined as those required by statute to be performed by the applicable officer and only that officer. So why is that a misunderstanding of the Vacancy Reform Act? In other words, any delegable function can still be performed by someone like Mr. Hirschfeld and wouldn't violate the Vacancy Reform Act. Any act by Mr. Hirschfeld wouldn't be considered null and void. Your Honor, because if you adopt that reading, you read Section 3347B out of the statute entirely and you leave the statute powerless to address the very abuse Congress was trying to reach, which was the Department of Justice doing the exact same thing. I see I've exhausted my opening argument time. I'm happy to continue answering the panel's questions, but I also, like my colleague, has issues of patentability to address. Well, when you 
argued your, you've spent your entire time on your FVRA argument, your statutory argument. You have some overarching appointments clause challenge, which I find um, difficult to comprehend in light of the Supreme Court's Arthrex decision. The Supreme Court's Arthrex decision expressly uh, acknowledged that uh, remand to an acting director would satisfy the appointments clause concerns. An acting director is not a principal officer who has been um, nominated by the president and confirmed by Congress. So in light of that in the Supreme Court argument, uh, Supreme Court case, can you please explain to me what your appointments clause general argument is, the lead argument in your brief, not your FVRA argument, but your overarching appointments clause argument? Certainly, Your Honor. If, if the president had appointed an acting officer and that officer was serving for a reasonable time, we, we agree that that acting officer could exercise the functions of the director. But Eaton has some important limits built into it, and the, the main one that matters here is that Eaton applies only where Congress authorizes the president to name an acting officer. In this case, um, the agency didn't rely on the statutory options of the FERA. Instead, it simply made up its own succession plan, not only without congressional support, but contrary to Congress's expressed design. The, the Patent Act says that upon a vacancy of the director's office, the deputy director exercises the functions and duties of that office. It also, under the Vacancies Reform Act, there's three specific options for the executive branch to fill that office temporarily. So if the president had, or the agency had followed one of those statutorily specified routes, we agree we'd have a very difficult argument under Eaton at that point, because Congress would have authorized the president to fill the office temporarily. The problem here is there was no congressional authorization for what the agency did, it simply made up its own succession plan in the teeth of the statute, in the teeth of the Vacancies Reform Act, and nothing in Eaton or any subsequent decision allows an agency to simply make up its own miniature version of the Vacancies Reform Act in that fashion. So do you, I mean, do you agree that um, at, at any point in the past year, President Biden could have returned Mr. Hirschfeld back to his permanent position as commissioner of patents and selected someone someone else to uh, be the acting director? Certainly, Your Honor. Okay. Uh, and, and the fact that that could and, have been done... he still continues to have that power and, and therefore that kind of oversight uh, authority over the PTO. That may be relevant to the separation of powers issue, Your Honor, but on the appointments clause, what matters is whether Commissioner Hirschfeld himself was duly appointed to the office he's now exercising, and he wasn't, because with respect to Commissioner Hirschfeld, the president never appointed him. He was not the first assistant to the director, so the Vacancies Reform Act doesn't apply. The Patent Act doesn't apply. It was I, I, a, I guess my problem is it, it seems like your appointments clause issue would actually render the Vacancy Reform Act unconstitutional. I, I don't think so, Your Honor. I... I certainly not every aspect of our challenge. The, the, the basic and most important problem for the appointments clause here is that Congress did not provide for the appointment mechanism that the agency relied on. So if the court rules with us on background, there's certainly no problem with the Federal Vacancies Reform Act because that's very clearly a congressionally authorized appointment mechanism. 
you know, I realize there are other aspects to our arguments in terms of whether the president personally has to be the one making the appointment. But I take the government's point. If the court ruled in our favor on those grounds, it might call into question certain aspects of the Vacancies Reform Act. But it's not an issue the court needs to reach in this case. But could you just briefly explain what's the principle behind why the congressional enactment of the Vacancy Reform Act somehow makes it okay under the Appointments Clause? Because still, you know, under your theory, there still wouldn't be a presidentially appointed officer that was Senate-confirmed. Right. Your Honor, the reason why congressional authority matters is that the structure of the Constitution is that Congress has to create offices, whether principal or inferior, under the Constitution. So it is one thing for Congress to set up a mechanism where an inferior officer can temporarily exercise the functions of a vacant principal office. It's another thing where Congress has not created that mechanism or has created the mechanism but provided the acting appointment to a different person entirely, and the agency simply makes up its own succession plan. That defies a different aspect of the Appointments Clause, which is the role of Congress in defining federal offices. Is there any statute or law that precludes a director of the USPTO from delegating the duties of the office of director? So there are two provisions that grant the director general delegation authority, and I realize one of the Court's questions before argument was whether those are restricted to situations. I'm not referring to grant. They preclude the director. Okay, so the Vacancies Reform Act, by its terms, precludes an agency from relying on general delegation authority to effectively create a succession plan. So that's 3347B. In addition, the Appointments Clause limits the ability of an agency to rely on delegation authority because, as I've explained, one of the structural premises of that clause is that Congress has to create offices, and I don't think Congress creates an office just by granting an agency general delegation authority, which would then supposedly allow that agency head to create its own inferior offices and for acting appointments and whatnot. So I do think both the FDRA is an explicit limitation on that delegation authority, and the Appointments Clause is a structural limitation on that authority. If the panel has no further questions, I'll reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal. Okay, that's fine. I'm sorry, Your Honor, would you like to hear about that? No, you have to be at the podium. You need to come to the podium. My apologies, Your Honor. As to patentability, the central question in this case is whether Arthrex had written description support for a generic island that threads suture throughout its priority chain. Notably absent from this claim term is any requirement that the suture slide freely. All that was required was that the islet merely thread suture, and that is all that was required to demonstrate written description support for the generic islet. In this regard, in the Board's decision, they made three legal errors. The first legal error was the ignoring of evidence and argument that we put forth of the common function of threading and at least one structure for accomplishing that function throughout the entire priority chain, and that should have been considered under the theory of Amgen and In re Smythe. Despite that, the Board did not look at that argument or evidence, and In re Nuvasiv requires the Board answer that question, and for that reason, this case must go back. 
In addition, the second legal error is the board's misreading, I would say, of PACE. During the course of the specification, or in the course of the specification of the 707 application, there are a number of comments made about the ability of rigid eyelids to slide better than flexible eyelids. First of all, I would submit that is irrelevant to the claim term about whether an eyelid merely threads. And for that reason, it should go back. But I would also submit that the board discounted the written description support that was provided by the incorporation by reference of the 280 application. Where there is a broad incorporation by reference, this court in both PACE and Harari have indicated that narrowing or even critical language do not eliminate that written description or that incorporated reference as written description support. And that, I would say, Your Honor, is legal error because the board did ignore the 280 application and never looked at the question of whether the incorporated reference could provide written description support for the generic eyelid. And that is something that's been acknowledged by Brother Counsel. Well, my understanding of the board's decision is a little different from that. I mean, the board accepted the fact that the 280 application was incorporated by reference into the 707. But then it noticed that the 280 application was incorporated by reference into the background of the invention section of the 707. And then the 707 proceeded to criticize the invention described in the 280 as incorporated by reference and talked about how it impedes slidability. That's a big disadvantage of the 280. And then it went on and said, what we want to do, the object of this invention is to have the suture freely slide. And then it used the term freely slide over and over and over again through the detailed description of the invention. And so, therefore, for that reason, my understanding is the board found that the true invention contemplated by the inventors in the 707 was about a rigid eyelet, which would permit freely sliding of a suture going through it, which the flexible loop does not do. It does not freely slide. And so that's the problem. So in that sense, it did consider the 280 application. But the problem was the context in the way that the 280 application contents were treated in the 707 application that led the board to conclude that a person of ordinary skill in the art would not understand the contents of the 280 as being part of the 707. So could you please respond to that? I think if everything is factually true about that understanding of how the 280 is treated, what is wrong then with the conclusion that the 280 could not be considered as part of the contemplated invention in the 707? Your Honor, the most salient fact is set forth in the board's decision where they said about the 707 application that it could not even support or provide written description support for the flexible eyelet. So one can only come to that conclusion if you consider the fact that the board considered it enough to discard it, which is precisely what Pace and Harari teach against. Furthermore, Your Honor, if they had actually examined the written description, they would have seen the benefits of a flexible loop, which are set forth in the 280 application, 
And the opinion is absolutely silent about whether that single embodiment could provide support for the written description. And for that reason, the board never actually examined. And we know that it's not only the question of the incorporation by reference, but it's the extent of the corporation that matters. And those are both questions of law. And while the board may have answered the question, the reference is incorporated, they also, as in PACE, disregarded the content and all the benefits of a flexible loop. Well, in Tronzo, I mean, that you, the big challenge you have is the Tronzo case. There were prior art patents that were incorporated by reference into the parent patent in Tronzo that, in fact, contemplated and disclosed hemispherical-shaped cup hip implants. And ultimately, the Federal Circuit said, no, that is not part of the written description. That's not adequate written description support in that parent application, given the way that that specification described hemispherical-shaped cups to be inferior and then touted the advantages of a conical-shaped hip implant. And so, therefore, that was what the written description was. It was for conical shape, not for hemispherical shape. And that's why the board, I think, arguably was reasonable in concluding we have the exact same situation here, which is unique. But nevertheless, when you're denigrating a certain kind of embodiment and you're touting the advantages of a second embodiment, your written description support is really for that second embodiment and not for both the first and the second embodiment. May I address that, Your Honor? Yes. With respect to Tronzo, it was very clear that the initial incorporation by reference was narrow. The district court said as much that the prior art references were incorporated only for prior purposes. That is a sharp contrast to the broad incorporation, which is undisputedly broad in this case. And so this case falls in the same ambit as Pace, where you have a broad incorporation and you have later comments set forth in the patent that suggest that perhaps something else was left behind. But Harari states and Pace state that we must look at the entire broad incorporation and not simply discard it just because negative comments are made. And I would also submit that in Tronzo, as this court held in Cordes, there was no express disclosure of a species that could support the generic claim term, as this court itself had said. And what the issue really boiled down to was a question of inherency. All this to say that every case— Well, hold on, hold on. The patents that were incorporated into the parent patent in Tronzo, those incorporated patents, they disclosed the hemispherical-shaped cup-hip implant, right? I can only go with what the court said, which was there was only one disclosed embodiment, which was the conical— Well, the Tronzo opinion itself talks about the hemispheroidal cup shape of the prior art patent. That was not part of the written description of that patent, ultimately, because of the way it was criticized. And I would submit that the narrow incorporation, that those references were narrowly incorporated, as the district court indicated, and as the opinion states— Well, I mean, it's the Federal Circuit opinion that's binding on us. Well, I understand that, Your Honor, but the distinguishing fact was that— But I don't see any distinguishing fact like that described in the Federal Circuit opinion. Your Honor, I would submit that— Well, we can all agree, Your Honor, that every case must be decided on its own facts, and that there is case law from this court that says prior art, as well as 
disparaged or criticized embodiments uh, can provide written description support, and the simple discarding of those under Pace and Harari is improper as a matter of law. You can cannot you cut those out. Can you explain the prosecution strategy here? Because I've never seen this before in 30 years in patent law where you file a patent application and then you file a continuation in part application where you erase all of the detailed description of the invention from the parent application and then you incorporate it by reference into the background section of your new application and then you have a completely new, different detailed description of the invention in your new application with brand new figures. Your what Honor, was the only the, brand new... What was the point of that? And normally, typically, a CIP, you stick with the original uh, specification and then you add on to it well, with, because you have a new embodiment that you want to disclose and describe. Well, there's no dispute that the material that was in the incorporation by reference is the very same that was set forth expressly. My question is why? Why would someone do that? Your Unless Honor, they were making the conscious effort to express and communicate that everything that was in the original application is now something that's background prior art that has some serious disadvantages that they now want to improve upon with the newly disclosed environment. Well, I would submit, first of all, that... What's an alternative reading to that choice that was made in filing the 707? The alternative reading is, frankly, so that everyone can understand what the incorporation by reference sets forth because it's so frequently the case that people don't understand... My question is, why didn't you just leave the 280 application content as is and then add on new material and new figures that would support the rigid eyelet in the 707? Because there didn't need to be, since those were all part of the incorporated material. But I would also submit very quickly that simply because it's in the background, as this court has held, and as we set forth in a brief, you can still rely on that content for 112 support. And simply because of location, it should not change the question. But putting all this aside, how does any of this relate to the question of whether there's support for an eyelet that threads? Perhaps if we had claimed an eyelet that slides freely, we would be out of luck. But we did not do that. What we claimed was a common subject matter. And for that reason, the board never got to that question of whether or not th that support could be provided by the written description support. And it was wrong for the board not to consider that in the first instance as Pace and Harari teach. Uh, putting aside the question that they never got to the question of whether there was common function and structure under Amgen and in race What if the 707 application said, um, we invented the 280 contents, but it's terrible. Don't use it. It, you know, use our new embodiment that we're disclosing here in the 707, because now you can have a suture that freely slides, and now you get a lot of advantages with that over our 280, which is no good. Would you say under those circumstances uh, that we would find that there's written description for both um, the the flexible loop embodiment and the rigid eyelet embodiment? I would say that there is that instance in support in here because you have the broad... I'm sorry? What? I would say that there is support here for the broad incorporation... So a person of ordinary skill in the art would think that the inventors of the 707 would think, yes, they uh, have possession and, and are communicating that their invention that they want in the 707 is both the 280 and the 70s and the rigid eyelet. And that's precisely why there's a broad incorporation at the very top 
that I would read that broad incorporation and all the advantages and benefits that for Katrina? Yes, I was going to ask you, it seems to me that the Tronzo case is directly on point here and does not favor your position. Explain to me why you would disagree with that. Primarily for the two reasons, which is the incorporation of Tronzo was very narrow. But putting aside the question of whether there was a narrow incorporation, which the case law has been cited on point, the fact of the matter is there was no specific issue of a genus, or I'm sorry, a species that was supported by the genus, which is in contrast to here. So all the cases that they cite do not stand for the notion that where there is expressed disclosure of a supportive species, that that should be negated by disparaging, critical, or even differentiating remarks. If every CIP, we could look at every CIP in the world and somehow say the original idea was inferior to the improvement. But Pace teaches us that we take these applications together, that the original concept isn't necessarily discarded, especially when the inventor claims priority to that and continues to sacrifice patent term to preserve that original idea. And the original idea was an outlet suture anchor. And although it might work better to have that suture slide more freely, it's not what we claim. And for that reason, I submit the board should have that question, should look at that question, rather than for us to decide these facts, which the board has not even looked at, which they acknowledge. And each 112 in written description case must be decided on its own facts, as this court has held. And for that reason, I believe that this case must go back to the patent office. Thank you, Your Honor. I reserve any time, if any, for rebuttal. Yes, you don't have any. Mr. Salzman? Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court, Joshua Salzman for the United States. Unless the court wants me to begin elsewhere, I'll follow Mr. Cry's lead and start with the statutory argument. Could you just tell us, what is Mr. Hirschfeld's current title? He is performing the functions and duties of the director. The office to which he is appointed is commissioner for patents. But he is pursuant to it. It would be wrong to call him Commissioner Hirschfeld, right? Today, it would be wrong to call him Commissioner Hirschfeld. I don't believe that is the title he is currently using. That is the office he currently has. It would also be wrong to call him Director Hirschfeld. It would be wrong to call him Director Hirschfeld. Would it be wrong to call him Acting Director Hirschfeld? Yes, it would. So what do I call him? Well, wait a minute. He's occupying both positions right now, right? He's commissioner. I believe he still has the, he still occupies the office of commissioner. He is performing the functions and duties, or I should stress this, the delegable functions and duties of the director. Can the president fire him at will? So the president can remove him from those functions by invoking the Federal Vacancies Reform Act. I believe Judge Chen had a colloquy earlier during Mr. Cry's argument explaining how that would work. He can't remove him from federal service altogether except pursuant to the protections that apply to under 5 U.S.C. Section 3 governing the removal of the commissioner for patents. So that would be for misconduct or failure to perform under a performance improvement plan. But at any time, if President Biden is dissatisfied from January 20, 2021 up through the present day, if at any point the president had been dissatisfied with the way Commissioner Hirschfeld was exercising the functions and duties assigned to him or wanted somebody else in the position, he would have had the ability to invoke the Federal Vacancies Reform Act and put in place anyone else who has Senate confirmation 
or anybody who meets the requirements of A3. It can't be the case that the appointments clause is satisfied and the FVRA is satisfied because President Biden could act but didn't. Those are affirmative obligations. The fact that he could act to rectify something doesn't mean that what's happening now is legitimate. I completely agree with that, Your Honor. So why don't you focus on why what has happened now is in fact legitimate. It does not cause a conflict with either the appointments clause or isn't, I guess under your argument, the FVRA doesn't even apply here because are there any non-delegatable duties that the director executes? Not as far as I'm aware for the director of the Patent and Trademark Office. So in your view, there are no non-delegatable duties of the director and therefore the obligations, the duties and functions of the director can be completely delegated to a non-principal officer. That's correct. There may be constitutional constraints at some point under Eaton or one of those precedents, but certainly everything that has happened to date conforms to both the appointments clause and all statutory restrictions. And I'm happy, I'll begin with the statute first, given that's where most of the argument was earlier. So the commissioner has the authority to issue patents as acting director? All of the patents that have been signed by Mr. Hirschfeld over the last 14 months are valid because that is a delegable function. It was delegated to him and he duly exercised that function and legitimately exercised that function that conformed with the appointments clause and it also conformed with any applicable statute. Are there any functions or duties that a director at the PTO has that in your view are not delegable? No, I don't believe there are any. But that doesn't mean, there are other agencies, there are other circumstances where Congress has expressly said a certain officer and only that officer can exercise that duty or function, but that hasn't happened specifically with regards to the director of the PTO. Would you agree that there are very, very, okay, so your view is there are zero duties and functions performed by the director which are not delegatable? That's correct. Would you agree that in general with regard to heads of agencies, it's a very small subset of duties that are in fact would satisfy the government's view of what things are non-delegatable? Yes, it's a small subset, but it is an existing subset. I can give the court examples if the court wants an idea of what we see as being covered by it. The DC Circuit case had two examples. Stand up for California. But we're talking about, what I'm struggling with is the notion that Congress adopted the FVRA and intended in its adoption for it to apply in that excruciatingly narrow set of circumstances that you just articulated and not at all to apply to the USPTO. That's your view, right? Your view is the FVRA doesn't apply to the PTO because it only applies to constrain non-delegatable duties and there are none at the PTO. Well, I think you can conceptualize the FVRA. Yes or no? Is it your view that the FVRA does not apply to the PTO? It certainly applies to the PTO in an affirmative sense. It provides President Biden with a mechanism for installing an acting official of his choice. If you're reading, when you ask the question whether you're saying whether the FVRA imposes constraints 
as opposed to an affirmative grant of authority to President Biden. As it pertains to the Patent and Trademark Office, I'd say no, and I attribute that to the language Congress chose in Section 3348. Under, under your view of the FVRA, um, not only does it not, it does not provide any constraints, you say it provides a mechanism. But your view is it's not the exclusive mechanism, and President Biden need not even concern himself. The PTO can, of its own accord, appoint successors to act as principal officers. Is that not your view? Un un unless and until Congress passes a statute, which it certainly could, that vested some duty or function in the director and only the director, and then that, that would be exempt from any possible delegation. But and why do you think the Supreme Court in the Arthrex decision said director or acting director? Why do you think it's so narrowly tailored? I mean, because, you know, it was not oblivious to the idea that there could be a vacancy in the position of the director. Why else would it use the words acting director? But it did. It expressly said an acting director would be authorized to do this. I think trying to obviate a potential future challenge. So they were cognizant of the idea that, and they let us know that this function would not be restricted to the director. They included an acting director, even though there was no acting director at the time, correct? There was no. Right. So, so the Supreme Court went out of its way to tell us either a director or an acting director, even though there wasn't one at the time. So it wasn't like they just defaulted to the position that was in existence would satisfy the Appointments Clause concerns. What do you think that tells us about whether somebody, I don't, why, why doesn't, why don't you just make this guy acting director? So I, I think that's a fair question, Your Honor. How hard I, would I it think, be? So, well, I think it's What would it entail? What it would, would entail is the president signing a piece of paper saying that um, if, if he wanted to uh, invoke his authority under 3345 to, to name Andrew Hirschfeld the acting director. But I think it's important so to it's remember... So it's just the president signing a piece of paper. That's it. That, that is. But it's important to remember that when you have a presidential transition, you have huge turnover in more than a thousand offices across the government that require Senate confirmation. Now, in order uh, to ensure continuity of government, to ensure that operations don't grind to a halt in the months so you following. think that when, just so you know, so you think that when the Supreme Court went out of its way to say not just would a director satisfy the Appointments Clause, but an acting director would also, even though we all agree there was no acting director at the time, you think that I should give no import to the notion that, that that's not meant to be a constraint in your view. The Supreme Court was not signaling to the world that a director or an acting director would be able to do this, consistent with the FVRA, for example. You don't think I should interpret their opinion as as authorizing only those sorts of people? You think it was just a throwaway? No, I, I, them. I, I'm not asking the court to, to treat it as a throwaway. I think when the court said we ran, remand to the acting director uh, to consider whether uh, to review the decision here, I, I think the court was certainly saying an acting director could perform this function, which I think is devastating to their constitutional argument. But I don't think you can read a negative inference into that, saying that somebody who has been duly delegated the functions and duties of that position can't perform that. And I think that... I guess that that's the whole problem. Were they duly delegated the functions and duties when they were not selected by the president or confirmed by Congress? The Supreme Court made it clear the confirmed by Congress part's not necessary when they included the, la the language acting director. So that, I agree with you. It dooms their constitutional argument. I'm already there. 
you know, because their constitutional argument, as I interpret it, would conflict with the Supreme Court's affirmative statement that an acting director could do it, and it would also make the Federal Vacancy Reform Act unconstitutional. I'm there. So the problem, though, for me is I don't know what to make of the idea that your view of the FVRA is it's got a minuscule application in the world. It is virtually inapplicable to the world as we know it, and not at all applicable to the PTO. So I think Congress was balancing concerns when it enacted the FVRA. It certainly wanted to impose some constraints and also to create a framework through which it could create more constraints in the future by specifically vesting authorities in the president. But it's also an atom bomb to say that a government agency has to stop operating. And I think Congress wanted to ensure continuity of government as well. So it struck a balance in 3348. I don't think anybody in this case is suggesting that an agency has to stop operating. I think what the suggestion is, is that there are certain duties and functions which are required to be performed by a principal officer or in the absence of a principal officer, somebody authorized by Congress and by the president to perform those duties, which is exactly what would be satisfied by an FVRA-type appointment. So I think the question then is whether you're talking about all the duties and functions or whether there's something special about this duty or function. And I'd like to take those in turn. In general, the way statutes are normally structured, including at PTO, but across the executive branch, is that most of the authority is vested in the agency head. And then all of the operations of the agency occur through an exercise of delegated authority. And many agencies have statutes, including PTO has two statutory provisions that we've cited that provide for the delegation of authority. If you believe that only a Senate-confirmed principal officer or somebody who is serving under the FVRA can be in place for the delegation to be effective, then that would basically mean in the wake of every presidential transition, agencies would need to stop operating for weeks or months until such time. Number two, under the FVRA, the number two person in the agency, in this case, not a political appointee, not somebody who needed to necessarily tender their resignation, not somebody Senate-confirmed, would have just stepped into the role. And every agency has people in positions. It will often be the case that the first assistant, unfortunately, will also either be a political appointee or will be somebody who will leave in times of transition. The FVRA is designed to provide continuity of government. And A1, the first assistant provision of Section 3345, reflects that because it works by operation of law. But the problem is— So if the other side is correct, if Arthrex is correct, then what would have needed to have happened is President Biden, on January 20, 2021, signing some sheet with a list of, I don't know, a thousand names, authorizing a whole bunch of different people in a lot of different agencies and departments to serve as the acting principal officer to carry out all the functions and duties throughout the executive branch. Is that right? I think you would have to identify all of the individuals who you would want to serve, and then the president would, as you say, have to invoke his authority under A2 or A3. Otherwise, the work of the PTO would have to stop. Because as I understand the statute, somebody has to occupy the director position at all times in some way or function because it's that office of the director that is 
the one that's authorized to delegate everything that happens in the PTO. And so if there's nobody occupying the director position, then there's nobody, there's no authority to have the patent examiners do their work or the trademark examining attorneys to do their work. So I actually... Is that right or wrong? I actually don't quite agree with that, Your Honor. I think it is important just as an administrative matter that somebody be performing those functions and duties. I don't think somebody needs to occupy the office. One of the questions this court asked in its order from Monday... I'm looking at the delegation paper, as you call it, signed by Teresa Stanek-Rayo, dated 11-15-2013. And then she says, I hereby delegate the non-exclusive functions and duties of the undersecretary and goes on and uses the term non-exclusive functions again. What's an example of that non-exclusive function that she's talking about? I think exclusive here is synonymous with delegable. And as I explained earlier, as of this time, we don't think Congress has created any. Excuse me. What does non-exclusive mean? Non-exclusive functions. That means delegable. It means something that can be performed by somebody other than the occupant of the office. Apparently, some functions can be delegable and some cannot. I think as it happens, as the law stands currently, all of the offices, all of the duties and functions of the PTO director are delegable. This order contemplates that Congress could... Why isn't this decree or statement of delegation of authority, it must be infirm? Because apparently, it says, I hereby delegate the non-exclusive functions and you say that there are none. No, I'm saying all of them are non-exclusive. I'm sorry if I misspoke, Your Honor. I'm saying all non-exclusive means delegable. And I'm saying that all of the duties and functions of the office are delegable. The order contemplates that Congress could create, Congress could pass a statute that says the director and only the director may review decisions of the Patent Trial and Appeal Board. And if that had happened, then pursuant to subject section 3348, that would be something that wouldn't be a non-exclusive function. It would be an exclusive function. And because it wouldn't be delegable, then that would need to not be performed by somebody who is operating under a delegation. But that's not the case here. I would, if I may, like to return to Judge Chen's question from a moment ago, though. Before you do, let me ask you this. Your view is that this very function, reviewing board decisions, which in this case caused this whole case to go to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court to agree, no, the director has to do this, right? What did the Supreme Court conclude? I'm glad you asked, Your Honor. So what the Supreme Court said was the restraint on director review was unconstitutional. And therefore, and I'm going to quote from page 1987 of the Supreme Court's decision, what you need to have is a means of reviewing so that you can adopt the almost universal model of adjudication in the executive branch. Now, what is the almost universal model of adjudication in the executive branch? That often includes delegation of final decision-making authority from the agency head. The attorney general doesn't issue the final decision in most immigration cases. The commissioner of Social Security does not decide most benefits. There's a delegation to an entity called the Appeals Council. So is it your view then, as I understand it, just so that we're clear, that this Arthrex decision does not stand for the proposition that the director has to review, 
It's just that he has to have an ad adequate opportunity to review, correct? That, so far, you and I are in agreement. Right? I, I certainly agree with that. Now, could he delegate full throttle to the board, a la put us back in the situation we were in pre-Arthrex? Could the director comply with the appointments clause, but nonetheless say, I hereby delegate review authority to the board, such that exactly what was happening before this whole mess of a case came along is put back into place in practice, even though the director could theoretically withdraw that delegation at some point if he or, so, he or she so chose. But is it your view that since this is a delegatable power, the director did not, does not have to delegate it to an individual, but could in fact delegate it right back to the board? Yes, and I don't think that, that your, your question assumed that it would put us be put us back in the exact same situation we were in before, and that's where I take issue. Because what the Supreme Court said was so offensive about the original scheme was the restraint on review because it blurred accountability. Once the director has the power and has made that delegation, the director is then accountable for it. And the mere act of invalidating Section 6C insofar as it precluded director review is a fundamental change because it restores accountability to the director. So once that's removed, then the director can delegate, just as the Commissioner of Social Security has delegated her final decision-making authority to the Appeals Council, just as the uh, uh, Attorney General has delegated to the Board of Immigration Appeals decision-making authority in uh, immigration cases, uh, and on and on across the executive branch. I think another example we cite in our brief is the judicial officer at the U.S. Department of Agriculture has been delegated that authority. Even, but even in all here, cases, even here in the PTO, when it comes to IPRs, the director has delegated his or her authority to institute an IPR to the patent board. Yes, it has, and this court upheld that in Ethicon. Can you get back to my question? I, I'd like to. Yes, thank you, Your Honor. Um, so you asked a question, and I think this goes to the fourth question that this court posed in its order uh, from Monday about what happens to a delegation when the person who made the delegation leaves office. Um, and we, we, we haven't had a, a chance to brief this, but I, I have done some research. I have some citations I can read to the court um, from, from other circuits, not from this one, but that basically stand for the proposition that a delegation of authority survives the resignation of the person who issued the delegation. So I, that, that's from a Seventh Circuit case called Champaign County versus U.S. Law Enforcement uh, Assistant Administration. That's 611 F. 2nd, 1200. There's a Fourth Circuit case called United States versus Wider, 674 F. 2nd, 224. And I, I, I have more of these, but the, 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 the fundamental idea is... Well, yeah, what's the principle behind why that is so? So the, the principle is that an act actually... When the government takes an act, including by, for example, enacting a regulation or, or, or issuing a legally binding order, that takes effect even after the authority of the person who issued the order has has um, uh, expired, even after that person leaves office. So, I and I think that the consequences of contrary rule would really be shocking because it would mean, as as we were talking about earlier. Government operates, the executive branch operates it on delegated authority. And that means if, if it were true that a delegation stopped being effective, it would mean that if the director leaves office or if an agency head leaves office, everything that agency does or almost everything the agency does would, would 
slip into paralysis. There would be nothing the agency could do until the office was filled. And as we know, and as the Supreme Court recognized in Southwest General, the process of going through presidential nomination and Senate confirmation can be quite time-consuming. So what we have... But I'm just trying to understand what the other side is trying to argue and what the consequences of that are. And what the other side is trying to argue is for the PTO to have been able to remain in operation on January 20, 2021, then new President Biden needed to sign a piece of paper authorizing Andrew Hirschfeld to be acting director. That's my understanding of their position. I think they do make that argument. And then because that did not happen, not only was Mr. Hirschfeld without the authority to review the adverse patent board decision they got, but I think just about under their view, everything that has happened in the PTO under the past year has been invalid. I think that's right. I think they make two arguments. The implication of one would be devastating to everything that the patent office has made over the last 14 months. Wouldn't you agree that if we adopt their position that the 350,000 patents that have been granted over the past 14, 15 months are invalid or at least dubious? I think I'm loathe to say that because we'd have to look at what you say and potentially try to distinguish it. I think there's one way you could rule for them without having that consequence. And the one way you could do that is to say that there was something about this specific duty or function that made it non-delegable. Now, I don't agree with that argument, but I heard Mr. Pry to argue that if you read Section 3, which is the source of the director's authority, and as an overlay, look at Section 6C as modified by the Supreme Court, there is something special about this duty or function that makes it non-delegable. Now, if you said that, it would at least cabin the fallout of the implication to just the failure to provide director review. It wouldn't suggest that everything that has happened under Mr. Hirschfeld's watch is invalid. But unless you said that, I do think the consequences of their argument are really quite striking. There's one point on the statute that I really want to make sure I get out before I sit down because I see my time is dwindling. Their argument about why... By dwindling? I mean, I'm significantly over time, but I would ask the court's indulgence for one more moment. Feels slightly more accurate. Thank you, Your Honor. Their argument about why our FDRA position has to be wrong hinges not on 3348, which defines function and duty narrowly. It's 3347B. So there's two things wrong with their 3347B argument. The first is it's a technical point, but the statute says that any statutory provision providing general authority to the head of an executive agency to delegate duties statutorily vested in the agency head doesn't qualify. As it happens, the director of PTO is not the head of an executive agency. That is a statutorily defined term. The definition is found in 5 U.S.C. 105. As it pertains here, the relevant head of an executive agency would be the Secretary of Commerce, not the director of the PTO. So a statute that vests authority in the director of PTO, who is not the head of an executive agency, falls outside the scope of 3347B. 
You still have 3347A to contend with. I do, Your Honor. The 46 are the exclusive means for temporarily authorizing an acting official to perform the functions and duties of any office of an executive agency. That's right. And I think the key language there then becomes acting official. An acting official, we would say, is somebody who is serving in that capacity and therefore authorized even to perform the non-delegable duties. When somebody comes in under the FVRA, they can perform if there are any. And obviously, we're saying that the two collapse here because there are no. My understanding of your argument is when it says functions and duties in 3347, we should understand that phrase as it is defined in 3348, function or duty. Is that fair to say or that's not quite accurate? That's not quite accurate, Your Honor. Because 3348, it leads with the phrase in this section. Yes. So that makes this definition of function or duty in 3348 section-centric. I agree with that, Your Honor. So what do we do now with 3347? So I think the key to understanding 3347A is the phrase acting official. And we've tried to be very clear here in saying that Andrew Hirschfeld is not the acting director of the PTO. He would not be able to perform any non-delegable duty should Congress have created one. And that's the key distinction. Are you saying if 3348 did not exist and it was just 3345 to 47, you could still prevail? Absolutely, Your Honor. Because of how we should understand the term acting official? Yes, because we are construing this against a backdrop. And this is reflected at page 18 of the Senate to the extent the court cares to look at legislative history. But in page 18 of the Senate report that accompanied the bill that became the FVRA, Congress expressly recognized that nothing in the FVRA was going to prevent delegation. Congress did or the Senate did? Congress did or the Senate did? I'm just hoping you'll be a little more precise. And only the people participating in the Senate report, actually, not even the entire Senate. Absolutely, Your Honor. All right, so a few senators concluded. Go ahead. Please continue with your point. Yes. So it's reflected in the Senate report that delegations of authority could still happen. When the Office of Legal Counsel issued its first analysis of what the impact of the Federal Vacancies Reform Act had been in the immediate wake of that statute, it said it recognized that delegable duties could still be performed even in the absence of an acting official. And likewise, the Government Accountability Office, which is statutorily charged by Congress under the FVRA with monitoring FVRA compliance, likewise has understood, as we note in our brief, that delegable duties can still be performed. Because as we were discussing earlier, were it otherwise, the entire agency would need to shut down. How consistent is this practice inside the PTO with every other agency? Is this the way it works everywhere inside the executive branch? All these little administrative orders saying, okay, if this person and that person is gone, then we're going to make this person inside the agency. We're going to make Joe the person who performs the duties. A guy named Joe performed the functions and duties of the office. I'm not positive of his last name, but he's going to be the one. Well, I think we don't say Joe. But in terms of is this something that was PTO specific, the answer is no. I can't tell you it's universal across the branch. But I think it's laudable that in order to ensure continuity of government, agencies put contingency plans in place. And they say if the head of the department leaves, 
and the first assistant isn't there to step in, we want to make sure that the business of the agency can go forward to the extent practicable. And so you put in an order that says, here is, uh, it, it puts a succession plan, it ties it not to, normally to an individual, but to an office. And you say, essentially, if the first assistant first assistant isn't there, who would we, who should be next in line to just sort of be the caretaker, to oversee the ship, to keep things moving un, un, until a new officer can be put in place. So this is this is not a PTO-specific thing. We, we cited um, a law review article by Professor O'Connell called Actings, which which describes uh, how this practice but has been adopted. But you do agree that cases brain. like Eaton and others put some constraints on an agency's ability. Those constraints seem a bit amorphous to me. And you certainly didn't want to you know, nail them all down nice and neat for me in this case, because your view is whatever those constraints are, they just don't affect this case. But you agree there do exist some constraints that flow from Eaton on an agency's ability to do this. So I think there are constraints that both can flow from statute in, in circumstances where Congress chooses to make a function or duty exclusive. And likewise, I think we recognize that the service can't be indefinite. So what's the takeaway principle of how to conform with the appointments clause in these sort of transition periods? So Eaton provides a mechanism that says you don't need, as they contend, though I, I didn't hear them to repeat that. I, I understand here, your position but... of what Eaton doesn't require, but what is the affirmative principle for what needs to happen? I think the affirmative principle is that somebody can occupy uh, a an office on an acting basis temporarily, that and that whatever the outer perimeter of that is, the time that was in place here falls well within. This was an order that was issued in October, nine but months the into the tenure. But person can just be selected by any mechanism the agency deems appropriate. That's the problem. For me, right, as Congress went to a lot of careful thought and intention to come up with, you know, who is the first runner-up and the second runner-up in the beauty pageant kind of thing. So you're saying, no, none of that matters unless it's a non-delegatable duty. Um, yes, it could be done that way, but it doesn't have to be. The agency can sort of come up with its own mechanism. You claimed it's laudable for it to do so. But any mechanism at all by which it appoints somebody who can sit in the seat, but we won't call him acting, because that would be bad. That would make him an acting official. We can't have that. So he's just sitting in the seat and performing the duties and functions of a title I had never heard prior to this. That's the thing that is okay, that, that every agency can just kind of wing it I, for who runs the agency? Well, I... I... I take issue, I think, with uh, with the winging it. I I understand where well, where you're coming from. This feels like but, winging yeah. it. I mean, Judge Rayner read the the, yeah. the the sheet of paper that looks like something I could have written, you know, this morning and uh, just named somebody. So I I think that doesn't seem like something that went through any kind of process, right? I mean, was there like you know, it's not like the agency adopted. A, a, a thorough, thoughtful process of some sort that went through final review or something. Like, this just feels like a, a pretty vibrant and an important agency decision, and yet, boom, it was just made, right? Well, I, I don't want to speak to the... By the guy walking out the door. 
Well, more like I, a gal walking out the door. In this well, case. this 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 wasn't issued by uh, Director Iancu. This this is this has been the agency's policy going back. I, I believe the order we have currently was was just signed by Director Lee. Um, th- th- this has been. Uh, this or variations of it have been continuously in place. I, I think the record shows for uh, for more than a decade. And this is the kind of mechanism the agency has, as I said, to make sure that uh, there's somebody in place to, to sort of keep the trains running at least until uh, a new official can be put in. And every agency can wing it. Every agency can come up with their own mechanism for a secession plan regardless of the appointments clause, and that will not conflict with the appointments clause unless whatever mechanism they choose goes on for too long. And, well, and, and the, but it's all subject to presidential control because the president has the ability under the FERA to, to put somebody else in. So I, I think the key constraint here is political accountability. And that's really the, the key takeaway from Arthrax is you need to have accountability. Is there a way that, you, that the public can look at what's going on at PTO and say, if we are dissatisfied with that, can they evade responsibility? Can the president or the secretary of commerce or the, the political chain here evade responsibility for what's going on at PTO? And the answer could, is no. Could Director uh, Lee have said something to the effect, I delegate to blank, blank, all duties and responsibilities except for, you know, like uh, except for the issues of past. Can, is, does the authority go that deep that they can divvy up? Which, which uh, duties of which functions are going to be delegable? Absolutely, Your Honor. And that's something that happens all the time. Agency heads or um, uh, here, it's, it's not an agency head, but a, a principal officer uh, frequently make limited delegations. They make delegations of some functions but not others to different officers. In fact, that is, as I was saying earlier, how PTO operates, that they have the, the, the authority under Section 3 what, is vested What would that in. look like? How could we tell that that type of delegation had occurred? Well, you, you, you would look at what the delegation order said. You, you need some affirmative uh, okay. act. Some I, affirmative I was hoping you'd go there. Does a delegation uh, order, which I read to you a while ago, does it do that? Does it divvy up uh, functions and duties? Uh, it doesn't, Your Honor. This, this, this one chose to delegate all of what I, I believe Your Honor said were the non-exclusive duties and functions. As it happens, there are no duties and functions of the director that are not non-exclusive. So it ends up encompassing Why would all, they say all of that? the duties I mean, and functions. I mean, you're saying that, but you're an attorney. The, the actual politician or the bureaucrat here use specific words. Why, why wouldn't we believe that? I, a non-exclusive is something of a term of art here specifically designed to comply with the requirements of the Federal Vacancies Reform Act. If, if, if there had been a delegation that purported to cover uh, exclusive or non-delegable duties, that would create problems because you can't delegate that that which uh, you're, you're barred from delegating. Um, so I, I think that that was just a carefully worded statement designed to ensure and avoid any doubt that there was being an effort made to delegate something that would, that would be impermissible to delegate. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Salzman, for not using quite all of your time. Left a little for someone else. That's very nice of you. Uh, Mr. Steenberg, you've got a little bit of time. Thank you, Your Honor. Yep. Um, thank you, Your Honor, and, and may it please the court. Um, I'm Charlie Steenberg on behalf of Smith and Nephew here in Arthur Care, and I'm, I'm, I'm with my colleague, Jaron Sarwar. Um, I'd like to start with the merits, if it's all right. Um, 
Although I'll try to be brief because I think that Judge Chen and Judge Vena hit on the key issues already. While we have a convoluted priority claim and unusual prosecution strategy, we have ultimately a very simple factual question here, and that is whether substantial evidence supports the board's finding that the four applications that Arthrex filed over a 10-year period between 2003 and 2013 failed to support this claim or these claims that Arthrex wrote in 2014 to a novice future anchor with a generic first member. And as the board determined, based on a combination of affirmative evidence or affirmative statements describing the invention as permitting the free sliding of suture, disparaging comments concerning the prior flexible loop, expert testimony from an expert that the board deemed credible concerning the import of those statements, and even inventor testimony, the board concluded that Arthrex was not entitled to priority based on those patent applications. And as a result, the board didn't even reach the separate question of the present patent application. Arthrex makes two main arguments in response. The first is this question of common function. But as the board found, for instance, on page 32 of its decision, the function at issue is described in the specification of the applications from 2003 to 2013 was the function of permitting the free sliding of suture. Arthrex cannot now erase that disclosure by a claim-dropping strategy of focusing on the ostensible function of simply filling an eyelet. Mr. Cho mentioned the Amgen case, which Arthrex didn't even bring to the board's attention. Arthrex also mentioned the Smythe case, which speaks to the need to look at the function or functions, plural, described in the specification, which here, as I said, is the free sliding of suture. Even when acknowledging the possibility of alternative embodiments, the applications emphasize the need to permit the free sliding of suture. Mr. Cho also mentioned incorporation by reference and pace and hurrahing and such. But as the board, as was noted earlier, the board did consider the incorporation by reference, for instance, on pages 28 and 29 of the decision, and concluded that in context, the incorporation by reference was providing background for the actual claim dimension here, much like the case in Tronzo. Cases like Harari and Pace are not on point. Pace, in fact, emphasized that it's a two-part process. There's first the special legal question of incorporation by reference and what is incorporated. In the case of Pace, the board had wrongly deemed that something was not incorporated by reference. There's the second factual question of how a person of ordinary skill in the art would understand the combined disclosure, which in the case of Pace, because the board had not undertaken that inquiry, this court sent the case back down. Here, by contrast, the board's already done that work. Harari involved incorporation by reference in the preferred embodiment section, 
much like um, was acknowledged as a possibility in Bamberg, which is another case on point that we discussed in our briefing that applied Tronzo and applied and concluded that a similar board decision was supported by substantial evidence. Um, if there are no questions on the merits, I'd like to turn uh, briefly to the uh, uh, questions concerning Mr. Hirschfeld. And Can I ask you about the 707 application? Certainly. Um, there's a statement at 8.12.69. I just want to understand it. This is in the background section. It first says the flexible loop configuration at the end of the driver disadvantages disadvantageously impedes sliding of the suture or graft, which is fed through the suture loop. Mm -hmm. And then the next sentence says, in addition, because the cannulated driver of 280 is provided with a flexible loop at its distal end, placement of the suture or graft at the bottom of the blind hole or socket and the cortical bone must be approximated, thus sometimes necessitating additional removal, tapping, and insertion steps to ensure full insertion of the plug or screw into the blind hole or socket. Uh, this in turn may abrade the adjacent tissue and or damage the bone or cartridge, cartilage. Uh, what, I don't understand what the problem there is. Can you explain what that means? That sure. sometimes it, there's something about the flexible loop that necess necessitates additional removal, tapping, and insertion steps. Certainly, Your Honor. Um, it's important to keep in mind, first of all, that there are two sutures in the case of the, of, of the, of the trailer application. One is the flexible loop. The other so, is, is the yeah. suture patch. So you need, um, it, it's critical that you position the graph ultimately where the surgeon wants it in the body. Um, to do that, you, um, uh, you need tension on the, um, on the graph, on the graph suture. And, the concept in 2001 um, was to use the separate sutural loop um, to, um, to place tension on the suture graph. In the end, though, as described in the 2003 application, um, that didn't work well, and there was instead a need for a new invention. And Arthrex went out of its way in 2003 to explain why this new invention was patently distinct over the flexible loop, which was already in the prior art. Um, given that the you're given, not explaining though to me the technical problem that this sentence is trying to communicate. Can you do you understand it? Um, the is, is is best I understand it, Your Honor. The the when a surgeon is trying to use was trying to use the flexible loop at the end of, of this islet, it, it was not an exact process, and sometimes you'd have to um, basically pull it out and start over, which collectively was creating abrasion and okay. bone damage. Uh, I would like to turn briefly to the issues concerning Mr. Hirschfeld and um, uh, begin with um, the court's question four, which was whether the um, review of final written decisions of the board needs to be done um, by the director acting director. And as the government noted, um, the answer is no. Um, and we would submit that for exactly the same reasons that um, the director acting director does not need to lay eyes on every patent application that's, that's approved. In this case, the, it's now up to 420,000 applications that have been granted under, uh, over the last 14 months. And as uh, the Supreme Court emphasized in oil states, um, IPR is, involves the same basic matter as patent grant, is, is granting the patent in the first place. And while there was a suggestion that perhaps um, 
uh, one could distinguish a necessary um, um, uh, revoking a patent from granting a patent on the on the principle that the you know that that it's a bigger deal to revoke. Um, any any distinction any distinction along those lines would run into the same problem that the Supreme Court noted in Collins when explaining why it was unpersuaded by suggestions that the the, the, the regulatory authority at issue. Uh, concerning the FHA, FHFA was somehow less significant or impactful than the uh, authority at issue in Celia Law with the CFPB, and that that was not a line that courts should be drawn. Um, so uh, if, um, if Arthur's arguments are credited, uh, as, we covered, as we described in our briefing, um, it would uh, cast, cast, cast an extremely serious cloud over, over all those patents, Going back to the Supreme Court's decision in Marsh, noting that if a patent is missing a necessary signature, um, it's not operative, and um, there's no there's no opportunity for damages for the period in question. Um, finally, I mentioned briefly question five and the question of whether um, this is is delegable. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Actually, let me stop. The the um, Going back to the question of what's delegable and what's not, ultimately this was a matter for Congress. And for instance, in the in the AAA, had Congress desired to say that the director and only the director may do certain things, for instance, say only the director may issue only only the, the director and only the director may grant patents, say on that extend the life of a uh, FDA approved drug because of billions at stake. Um, that, that certainly would be something that would be subject to the FBRA. Um, we don't have that situation here, though. We have, in the case of both issuance and um, and um, um, and review of final written decisions, a, a a delegable task that therefore is not subject to the um, the remedial provisions of of thirty three forty eight. Okay, thank you, Mr. Steenberg. Um, <clears throat> Mr. Cry has some rebuttal time. Hold on, Mr. Cry, while they move you over. How much does he have left? None. <laughs> yeah, give him five minutes. We went over with Mr. Salzman by just a minute or two. Give, give Mr. Cry five minutes. Please proceed. Thank you, Your Honor. The Vacancies Reform Act has to be construed according to its text, but it also needs to be construed with some reasonable view of what Congress was trying to accomplish. Please read the Senate report. Please read the contemporaneous Congressional Research Service report, because the background for this statute was that Congress was dissatisfied with the fact that agencies were making it up. Agencies were using their delegation authority to come up with their own succession plans, and Congress wanted to restrict it. Congress wanted to limit agencies and limit the executive branch to specified mechanisms for temporary appointments. Congress knew that there were um, burdens associated with trying to do Senate confirmation during a presidential transition. But the plain import of the statute was that Congress did not think it was particularly burdensome for the president to sign a piece of paper with a bunch of names on it, which is why Congress specified in the statute multiple mechanisms that are not burdensome at all and that the president can comply with 
with the stroke of a pen. There's simply no burden associated with doing that during a presidential transition. And the executive branch simply disregarded those statutory processes here. According to the government, the Federal Vacancies Reform Act has zero constraint, zero impact on the PTO at all. It does not limit what the agency can do in terms of its succession plans in any respect. And the government conceded that over and over in this argument. Mr. Cross, is it your view that Mr. Hirschfeld was without authority to sign off on 420,000 patents? Your Honor, that is a consequence of our view, but there would be serious de facto officer doctrine arguments that the agency could make if somebody challenged those decisions. Generally, if a person's invalidly holding office, that complaint needs to be raised at the time. So if nobody at the time the patent was signed raised it, I would think the government would have strong arguments under the de facto officer doctrine. In terms of the impact or the government's interpretation of the FDRA, though, it has no impact on the PTO, no constraint at all. And even for other agencies, it has excruciatingly narrow impact. Those were Judge Moore's words, and they are not an exaggeration. Yes, there are some rare birds out there, exclusive functions that can only be performed by the agency head, but they are extremely rare. And it's just implausible. It is implausible that when Congress saw this problem of agencies making it up, coming up with their own succession plans, and passed the statute for the express purpose of telling agencies to cut it out, that the statute it enacted had essentially zero impact on anyone, and that the executive branch could just continue on with business as usual, making up its own succession plans, just like the agency did here. It's a completely unreasonable interpretation of the Vacancies Reform Act, Your Honor, and for reasons that I think the panel has actually already well highlighted. The government pointed to the definition of an executive agency in 3347B. The only point I'll make on that is whether or not they're right. The reasonable implication of that provision is that Congress cannot avoid the statute by general delegation. Agencies can't avoid the statute by general delegation provisions, and sub-agencies can't do that either. And I think the latter of those points is certainly the reasonable implication of the former, even if it's not something that happens to fall within the Title V definition of an executive agency. It's the exact same principle. So you think that you, I don't understand, you think that even if they're correct and 3347B only pertains to people at the level of the Secretary of Commerce, that we should nonetheless infer that Congress meant to adopt or enact a rule that applied it to lesser officers as well? Well, they're both officers in an executive agency. All officers in an executive agency, not just the ones specified? No, 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 Your Honor. As I understand their argument, their point is that these are not actual general delegation clauses within the meaning of this provision, because the provision says any statutory provision providing general authority to the head of an executive agency isn't a substitute for this act. And so the argument, as I understand them to make it, is that because these general delegation statutes technically give the head of the PTO general delegation authority, rather than the head of the Commerce Department general delegation authority, it doesn't apply. And my argument is that the reasonable implication of this clause is that general delegation authority provision. Okay, well, I don't think it's reasonable to read out to whom the clause applies, which is what you're asking me to do. So assume you lose on that argument. What is your other argument with regard to 3347 and why it causes the FVRA to have a broader applicability? Because you put a lot of weight on 3347B, 
And I think the clear text and the plain language of 3347B does not apply to authority delegated to the head of the PTO. So since that's the case, what else can you tell me about 3347 that you want me to keep in mind when thinking about how the FVRA operates? I would still say there's a broader question about whether a general delegation provision to whoever granted is an appropriate substitute for the appointment mechanism of the statute. 3347A says that the statutory appointment mechanisms are exclusive. And so I think 3347B is a clarification of that principle in the context of a general delegation statute. But 3347A still stands by itself. And when you have an agency, whether it's an agency or a sub-agency like the PTO, that comes up with a succession plan that delegates every function of the agency head to somebody else and it kicks in only when there's a vacancy in the office, by any standard, that is simply a substitute for the acting appointment mechanisms of the statute. Do you agree that the scope of 3348 applies only to exclusive non-delegable functions? No, we think that's qualified by the point that's clear both from the statute and also just from the context and the history of the statute that a general delegation provision cannot be relied upon. But I'm talking about 3348. 3348 specifically defines function or duty as being a non-delegable exclusive function. Do you agree with that? I think there's two arguments we have, Your Honor. One is that viewing the statute as a whole, that needs to be construed. I'm just reading the definition of function or duty in 3348. You can't seriously argue the actual import of the plain words of just that definition. No, I think the plain words of that definition is that when Congress vests a function in two or three different officers, it's a non-exclusive function. I don't think that provision clearly says one way or the other whether it covers a situation where Congress vests authority in one officer, but that officer happens to have general delegation authority. On that, I just think it's ambiguous. And I think it needs to be construed consistent with the background of the statute, which is that Congress did not want agencies using general delegation authority to evade the statutory appointment mechanisms. But even if you think 3348 is clear, that just tees up the conflict. And so you need to resolve the conflict between 3347 A and B and 3348. And we think when you view the statute against this background, Congress did not want agencies relying on general delegation authority to make up their own succession plans. And so 3347 has to be viewed as an exception or a carve-out to the language in 3348. I think those are two different routes to get there, but that is how we would harmonize those two statutes. And again, to be clear, on the government's contrary view, this statute was just totally ineffective to accomplish anything. It doesn't constrain the PTO's actions at all, and it constrains the actions of other agencies hardly at all, in all but excruciatingly narrow circumstances. And the government embraces that. Is there any way to hold the way you're arguing right now on this FVRA, the Federal Vacancy Reform Act statute? Is there any way to hold the way you want without being directly in conflict and thereby creating a circuit split between ourselves and the D.C. Circuit? There is no circuit conflict in any event, Your Honor. The stand of California, the district court, I think, provides some support to the government, but the Court of Appeals explicitly said it was not addressing the FVRA claim because it hadn't been raised on appeal. That's mentioned in the footnote in the D.C. Circuit's opinion. But there is a second ground, Your Honor. Hold on. I'm looking at the stand-up for California case, and 
you know, on page 622, it goes on to talk about exclusive versus non-exclusive functions and duties and what is delegatable and what is not. So... Right, and let me put this to you, Your Honor, on page 622. It says the panelists have not raised their FBRA claims on appeal. So I don't think there's a direct conflict. So we'd be conflicting with what you believe is a bunch of dicta. It's not dicta. It's comments in the context of a different type of challenge. On appeal, it was not an FBRA claim anymore. It was just a challenge to whether those functions were, in fact, delegable. And so one can make an argument out of this that this should support indirectly their FBRA argument, but I don't think it's a square holding that we're asking you to disagree with, which, of course, is not a binding decision in any event. I understand that you don't think we're bound by the D.C. Circuit. Thank you for that. I also understand that you don't think that it's even a holding, per se. But the position you're asking us to take is very much at odds with the position they articulated in that, or their understanding as articulated by them in that opinion. Well, the D.C. Circuit did not look into the background of the statute at all. It didn't mention 3347B at all, and it didn't grapple with the fact that their interpretation would just render the statute totally ineffective. But I do, I should transition, because if your honors want to decide this case on the narrowest ground, we do have our second argument. We agree with the government that it has narrower implications because it would only implicate the director's review authority over IPRs. And that's the point that even if you think Section 3348 treats general delegation functions as non-exclusive, the fact remains that this particular function is exclusive, because under the clear mandate of the Supreme Court's decision, the director is the only officer at the agency that can single-handedly review a board decision. They claim that the Supreme Court's decision just stands for the point that the director has to have the power to review decisions, but the court was really clear on this. I'm looking at page 1987 of the Arthrex decision, and the court explains why Section 60 cannot constitutionally be enforced to the extent that its requirements prevent the director from reviewing final decisions. But then the court says, very explicitly, Section 60 otherwise remains operative as to the other members of the PTAB. The court, that was not a throwaway line. The court made a very conscious decision that it was getting rid of Section 60's restraints only with respect to the director, and it was leaving them in place with respect to everyone else at the agency. And that's part of the court's mandate. The government can't avoid that just by claiming that the general thrust of the opinion was that the director should have greater review. The court gave as much as it thought the Constitution required it to give in terms of carrying back Section 60, and because Section 60 otherwise remains in effect with respect to everyone else at the agency, the director cannot delegate his single-handed review authority to any other individual at the agency. Okay, Mr. Cry, thank you very much. We understand your argument. Thank you. We'll give Mr. Cho one minute. Your Honor, very quickly with regards to the merits, the court has focused on the background section and noticed that there is some discussion about the risk of unlawful and additional steps. I would also note that that same background describes the suture loop as still an improvement, and that did not constitute disclaimer, which I don't believe there's any authority in the case law that suggests that you can erase express written description support by statements such as this. So I would submit very plainly 
that this is not that case. But drawing attention to the invention at issue, it is a suture eyelet or an eyelet that threads suture. We did not, if there was disclaimer, give that up. And for that reason, I believe, Your Honor, we should have this case, at least the written specification considered by the board. Thank you, Your Honor. I thank all counsel. This case is taken under submission.